welcome to Gaming. I'm John Robertson and you'll immediately recognise that our theme music is different to normal. That's because our show this week is an interview with Double Fine's Tim Schafer and we thought it appropriate to use music from Psychonauts, Double Fine's first game which was released back in 2005. Personally, this is my favourite piece of music from the game and I'm the one that edits these podcasts so you'll have to just allow me this little flourish. The privilege of interviewing Tim was actually enjoyed by Stace Harmon, my fellow creator here at Indie by Design, so don't worry, you'll be ridding me shortly. We thought that this is a fantastic time to talk to Tim, given that we're coming up to the end of what has been a pretty unique year for most of us, and our next book, 20 Double Fine Years, is all about Double Fine. The book chronicles the studio's two decades in existence, in the form of a rather beautiful, though I say so myself, hardcover book spanning 288 pages. We're very thankful to Double Fine for providing us unfiltered, unrivaled access to their art archives, and they've also given up a lot of their time to allow us to conduct tens of hours of original, exclusive interviews with them and their key collaborators, so that we don't miss a single story or a single insight. You can find out more about that at doublefinebook.com, where we're currently taking pre-orders. There are some pretty lovely pre-order incentives currently available right now, which include free shipping and the exclusive Legend edition of the book. So do make sure you check those out. Otherwise, on with the interview with Tim and Stace, which begins with Tim talking about the unusual nature of working as a studio whilst in lockdown. You know, two weird things going on. We're shipping Psychonauts 2. I mean, not that weird. We told everyone we're doing it. We're supposed to be doing it. But um, unusual in that it's a big game and we're shipping it and we're in quarantine. So we're Mm -hmm. all locked in our house. So, you know, uh, telling this story of the 20 years of Double Fine is really funny because it ends with this really odd (laughs) chapter. I mean, the current story ends with this chapter where we're all locked in our homes staring at each other across little Brady Bunch style uh, collages yeah. of faces. It, it seems like the perfect time to do a book about Double Fine when we uh, when we actually can't come and see you. We we get we got to come and see you once earlier this year, which seems like a lifetime ago uh-huh. now. Um, uh, but uh-huh. yeah, we were due to be coming out again around E3. Do you remember when that was a thing? When thousands of people used to gather in one place. What's uh, what's E3? <laughs> that seemed like. A- Can you imagine that? How disgusting! People breathing yeah. and. And we all kind of knew it was somewhat un- unhygienic, uh, even before this. Well, I mean, I would get sick every year at PAX. You know, I would always like, you know, be crazy about sanitizing my hands yeah. and stuff. And still get sick and be like, mm. oh, whatever. Never thought I would die. No. Wow. That was a dark start, wasn't it? <laughs> if anything, I thought it would make me stronger. Yeah, we're going to start over now. Again. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So we're, we're making a book, Tim. Did you know? We're making this book. Have you heard about this? We're creating this book. Uh, 20 years of... 20 double fine years. And haven't they been? How, oh, how lovely. So. What a lovely... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 20 um, double fine years. Great. I approve. I think that's a great idea. It has been a strange, strange, weird story. And fun. Well... And it has, and it's, it's ongoing, unusual. of course. Um, so there's some, there's a few things I'd like to touch on today. One of them is if you could just wrap up 20 years in succinctly in a, in a nice single statement, that would be awesome. But beyond that, also the last year um, as, or the, your first year, as a Microsoft studio. And that's something that mm-hmm. is becoming increasingly common. Apparently, Microsoft spent... Um, 7.5 billion on Bethesda, which I'm sure is a drop in the ocean compared to what they paid for Double Fine, right? Yeah. Paid for yeah. us, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Who's not a double uh, Xbox studio at this point? I mean, are, you guys are probably Without even knowing studio it. Yeah. in some ways. That's why this... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I hope you got paid. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's funny. We are now an Xbox studio, but in some ways we started as an Xbox studio and that our first game, well, our first game and our current game is, are both Psychonauts and both with Microsoft, right? So that's how we got our start is that I um, <clears throat> pitched the game to Ed Freeze when the Xbox launched. And here we are at the new Xbox launching and uh, we're still making Psychonauts games. We're still making the same game. <laughs> Can you imagine? You seem to have a very... Uh a very strong desire for symmetry it seems that you you start and end two decades bookend two decades with uh, the same thing well we wanted there we wanted to be considerate for the book authors we, you know someday someone's going to tell the story and we want to have a really nice somewhere to start somewhere to finish uh, and it is actually as time at time of recording it it quite literally is the well it's Xbox day effectively um today so that's nice of you have you seen much of this this fabled new Xbox? Do you have one? Have you been playing it? It's like I might get delivered while <laughs> awesome. we're on this call. We could do an unboxing. It's like I got a tracking number and it's coming and it's my, it's going to be here. So um, you can you can, can unbox it right here for you. Do you know? I bet that would do gangbusters on on YouTube. I bet that would, that would be amazing. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so. Yes, 20 years. Uh, you started with Psychonauts, as you say. We're you know, working on Psychonauts now. I would like to know, are there some some particular personal highlights? And not so much necessarily in terms of games, not so much in terms of, oh, I love that game and that game I didn't, I didn't like so much. But in terms of more on a, on a studio level, kind of milestones for you as a studio are there things that you can point to and say i don't know like that that skiing trip was awesome or that particular breakthrough where that person <laughs> came to me and said they were naming their firstborn child after me was amazing are there other are kind of things that have been for you as a on, a on a personal level that have meant um meant significant that where you've seen significant milestones happen over these last yeah two decades yeah i mean you know there have been lots of highs and lows and um I try not to emphasize the lows because we survived them, and so who cares about those? But um, you know, we uh, the the most significant things. It's easier to look uh, backwards and and see what they were, and most of them involve the team. You know, we've um, in the end putting together this this uh, great team has been the the ultimate um, mm. creation mm-hmm. of Double Fine. You know, and some of them have worked here for for so long. And I always remember that it was a ski trip, actually. One of the first ski trips they went on, I was just looking at this room full of people who were just playing cards and cooking and laughing and drinking together. And I was like, wow, this company really likes each other. Like, they really like being together. And this this is, the, in some ways, like, one of the proudest things for me. It was just like we brought together a great group of people, you know. And, and um, <clears throat> I had worked at LucasArts, and that was a great company, too. But being able to start a company and be um, thoughtful when you're hiring people of um, the different personalities. And not just, like, can this person program, but, like, can this person, does this person want to work together in the way that we want to work together? And and I emphasize some things that I, you know, I really wanted to make a company that was, you know, we've been through some contentious years. In the early days of video games, uh, programmers ruled the roost and artists were treated kind of badly. And, you know, it's hard to remember that now because artists, I mean, everyone probably feels like they're treated badly now but um uh you, you know we saw little little factional wars like that you know as, as each group fights for some respect and i was like we're gonna have a culture where everybody respects each other everybody has mutual respect for every department and really fought for that and um so it's really great uh to see the team 
working together and have that permeate. So when I'm in rooms where I'm not around, people still remember that that is really important to, uh, to you know, remember how lucky we are to be working. And is that does that go some way to explaining why a lot of the staff that we spoke to, some of those, as you mentioned, have been there a long time. Uh, a lot of them talk about their job interviews, such as they were, and they talk about a big part of that job interview being going out for lunch or talking about just having a 40-minute conversation about um, other media or kind of like it felt there was as much a discussion about sussing out who th- who you are as a person and what you like as well as just what does your CV say can you can you do x y and z and was that a was that a deliberate thing or was that kind of a um that was just the way that you interviewed back back in the day i mean i think every every company we're not unique in part of that where every company wants to you know have that lunch test where they f- try to figure out if they can stand being around that person but there are other things that we were looking for too which is um uh a certain um, sense of collaboration and humility, you know, and, and, you know, you have to be, you can't be really arrogant to be a great collaborator. You know, you have to be pretty humble and be really ex- excited about other people's ideas too and how you can help other people's ideas, you know, um, and that's an important thing that we, we look through, look for. And, um, and um, yeah, does a person order the right food at the restaurant? I think that's obviously very important. You don't want to have anyone who likes Twizzlers more than Red Vines, important stuff like that. But, um, no, I mean, I, I think there is, you know, every, every comp- company has a cultural fit, and sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it. Um, but we, uh, we definitely look for a certain amount of, um, uh, I mean, in some ways it's like there's a certain amount of kindness as well that you look for. I think, you know, it's an it's a understated value in most interviewing processes, but I feel like, um, you know, if you do it right, you can have a, a jerk-free work environment, which is uh, really rare. Imagine, yeah, that would be good. Um, so then, as you've moved through the years, has that has the has it kind of has the importance of hiring the right person culturally? Is that something that you feel as uh, has that become more important for your studio fit as you've grown as a team? Is it has it become a thing where you've kind of you've let it ride and think, well, do you know what it does? work out that people generally just find their groove and fit with other people eventually regardless or is that is that still an important part of your of your hiring process <laughs> uh, well i think um as long as you're hiring slowly you can um absorb each person and find a great fit and the and both will change shape a little bit to fit with each other and usually that will work out um on the times where we've had a staff up quickly is where we've had the most friction you know i've had the most uh you know like uh if you get a bunch of new people at once, sometimes it's hard to make sure the values and the culture of the company is absorbed and, and, and shared among all the, the new people and you can have different kinds of conflicts. Mm. And that's... Luckily, we've never had any conflicts. <laughs> Ever. No. 20 years, no conflict, <laughs> which is good. That's, and is that where having these staff members who have been around for a long time, are they, do they act as kind of the... Um, I don't know, like the custodians, is that not right? No, perhaps like the champions of, of the studio culture. Care, the bearers of the torch, yeah. or the, uh, <laughs> uh, the keeper of the great book of values. I mean, there is a lot of benefit to that, having people in all disciplines, in, in um, programming and in art and um, uh, production that uh, have been there for a long time, so that when, you know, you know when newer members of the team are, are worried about something, they can hear how we've resolved that in the past. Mm. And um, uh, 
because uh, you know a lot of people on the team have seen a lot of stuff, and so they can be like, "Oh yeah, we've been here before. We've oh we had worse than this before. Don't don't worry. This is <clears throat> we've 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 solved uh, harder problems yeah. than this." Do you happen to have anybody on staff who is an expert in global pandemics? Is that a thing that you uh, that you? <laughs> Trying to think a global <laughs> pandemic. No, we've never had a global pandemic. It's no. a new one. But when you know, first, first, second, let's had nine eleven happened during it. And that was awesome. a, mm-hmm. you know, and awesome's not the word no. I was going to use, but no. it was definitely a, yeah. no, no, it was definitely yeah. Like uh, the world keeps turning and huge things mm. happen. Hold on one second. One second. Well, as you can hear, working from home has its unique challenges and its charms for all of us. So I thought this would be a good time to remind you to follow us on social media. We are at Indie by Design on all platforms. And to let you know that we have a YouTube channel, which has video versions of our podcasts, including this one, and also has playthroughs of games and other goodies. So do check that out. And don't forget, head over to doublefinebook.com to secure your copy of 20 Double Fine Years, our big book of all things Double Fine. So on with the interview. We rejoin Tim and Stace with Tim talking about the working and creative culture at Double Fine. I mean, it's a time during a global pandemic when we had our first all-team video conference meeting, you know, and I was like, oh, God, what are we going to do? And seeing everyone's face, everyone looked so happy to see each other, and everyone looked like we're going to, we're going to, everyone's going to extend themselves and reach out and do extra, you know, extra work to make sure we're still connected. And that's when you kind of, you see the payoff for working so hard on culture, you know, and, and having a team that's not, it's not like everyone's there working for me. It's not like everyone comes to the company and is excited about working for me. Their, their day-to-day work is about being excited about working with each other and being kind of held in uh, horizontally. And so um, that really pays off in times of strain where they're not all just looking at me to like give some great, um, uh, Kenneth Brown's yeah. speech, you know, and make everyone feel excited all the time. But they, 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 they see each other's faces, and they, uh, they feel comfortable mm. by that. And ha- and ha- so, is there a thing for all the for all the negative things that have certainly come out of the uh, of the current situation and the pandemic? Is there are there things that you can look at and and feel that I don't know? Do, are there are there ways that the team has grown um, that perhaps? W- wouldn't or couldn't have happened if everybody was still in the office. So I'm trying to think of something that might be a positive, you know, kind of a thank COVID for that, <laughs> because now we do things this way. I don't know, like, has it, has it? Well, and there's one thing where I feel like it does help us, like to some degree, remote working is just a future way of everyone's life, because it was heading there already with telecommuting and people wanting to the globalization of the world. You know, we have people working on teams from all around the world. And that was, in some ways, a founding thing for Double Fine. I wanted to have more flexibility with a team. We had an artist who wanted to work three days a week, and Lucas said no, and so he quit. And I was like, I want to be more flexible with the team. And that got tested when Tyler Hurd, one of our early uh, uh, animators, said, I want to move to Iceland, but I don't want to quit. Wow. So we had a remote worker in Iceland, and it was like, and he was incredibly productive because there was nothing to do there after, you know, it got really cold outside, and he... Um, Got a lot of animation done. We're like, this is great. Um, so we've had remote workers, um, and we've had them, you know, represent on little screens. And for a long time, they were the oddballs, mm. you know. And they'd be like, I hope this. I hope I can hear what people are saying in this meeting, you know. And um, we try to accommodate it, but it wasn't a. <laughs> we were mostly thinking about the people who were in the office, and maybe uh, now that we've all experienced what it's like to see each other in these tiny little mm-hmm. squares, that we are, you know, probably more considerate of all our remote team members like Ray mm. and um, Nathan Bagel Stapley and 
and and, yeah. all that, and Evan and anyway. So there's that's one. Okay. Well, thing. I mean, I, we'll take that. I think that's you know that's to find to find something. I think is uh, is an achievement. So that's good. Yeah. I mean, it's not really work related, but I feel like when this is over. We're going to realize, like, for all of us who have kids, that it was an extra struggle to have kids during this time because they're home, you know, not in mm-hmm. school. But we'll also be really grateful that we had all this concentrated yeah. time with our kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, or and people with pets, even. People with pets. Like, they're yeah. dogs. So we're really excited. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's going to be this period afterwards where we're going to be like, I kind of miss being at home all day. That was kind of nice. I, you know, I miss movie theaters. I miss going to concerts and seeing my folks and stuff. But I did like hanging out in my pajamas a little bit more than I should have. <laughs> So, some of the things that we touched on when we visited you guys back in February, which, as I say, does feel like it was uh, a lifetime ago now, um, was we talked, we touched on the the Microsoft stuff, and as we talked about at the top of this, this is now we're, we're over a year now of you guys being a Microsoft Studio, and I wonder if has anything how. Have you kind of relaxed into that? Do you do you guys feel? Do you feel like a Microsoft Studio is that a thing? Do you? I mean, are you? How, how much does that affect your your day to day? Aside from hopefully not having to worry about keeping the lights on and that and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're in touch with what the other studios are doing, but we are still running our own ship and making our own style mm-hmm. of games. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't shipped a game yet with them, but we have. You know, been through big E3 shows with them, and we're part of the you know PR and marketing machine, and so um, we definitely feel like part of the team in that way. But we, you know, we fight to kind of maintain our independence, and um, that's what they promised. And I think that I believe that that's what they are, you know, mm. interested in. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's a great, it sounds like a great deal. So, so far, mm-hmm. so good. Mm-hmm. And it's presumably that's part of what they want from that deal is is the personality of these different studios that they're that they're buying yeah. double fine certainly has that in in spades i think i think that's is that a um like is when when you had that conversation with microsoft is was there a kind of we would like you guys on board because part of that conversation was there like a was it more of a well we want you we want to kind of beef up game pass in various ways but was there a i don't know was there like a sort of a pitch to you guys about what it was that they were looking for from you did they talk about why they want uh, the, the yeah, dna of double should have, yeah. <laughs> should have asked them that i mean i think they they said you know when they look back on all of our games and how uh the quality of each of the games and imagine them being you know xbox game studio games they would be extremely excited they'd be like oh yeah if that was part of our uh, body of work, we would be really excited, so, and and the fact that we had transitioned from making one huge game into many small games and could create a a volume of high quality stuff like stacking costume quest and all our games, yeah. um, I think appealed to them. Yeah, and have you have, have you? But we'll never really know what no. they wanted. I assume it was just our cool, cool swag. <laughs> have you had the time yet to to? Uh, obviously, you're still working on Psychonauts too, but have you had the time? to start letting those creative juices run and flow and all the things that creative juices do. Um, have you kind of noodled away on other game ideas? <laughs> have you kind of jotted down? We don't need to talk about specifics, obviously, but is it something that have you been able to kind of go back from from being solely responsible for keeping the studio 
going from a management point of view. Uh, have you been able to kind of go back into the wade back into the creative waters and and think about that side of things more, or is Psychonauts kind of taking up all of that energy? Yes, to both. Uh, I, I did uh, really immediately start thinking of these two ideas that I've wanted to make that I realized I could never get a publisher to sign. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I think I could actually think about those games now. So I've been bringing those ideas back from the dead. But then also Psychonaut shipping has been like 100% consuming mm. my time. So that's, that's really all I think about mm. these days. That's fair enough. Yeah, that makes sense. So the um, we've seen in putting together this book, we've seen a lot of the concept art. We've seen a lot of the concept art for for Psychonauts two. We've seen we've been back through the physical archives of some of the much older games, and that was something that happened recently. Uh, Monica very kindly scanned a lot of the physical art that was in the drawers uh, that was in that were in uh, one of the meeting rooms, and she went through and she's scanned all of that, and we've we're kind of digging through stuff that. Um, as far as I'm aware, some of some of it has never seen the light of day, uh, publicly at least. And I wonder, like, was that a thing? Has that this notion of of cataloging and of keeping hold of the the concept work and the building blocks that that make up your games? Was that something that you felt was important early on, or was that is that a thing that it's just been? kind of it's just happened that you look back and then you've got this treasure trove of, of stuff now like is that because some people work <laughs> almost entirely digitally so it they don't have that kind of physical those physical assets but was that a thing that you wanted to to kind of that was important to you or was it a thing that's kind of just happened over the years that you uh, in some ways it was a mark of its time because we were still using paper a lot and it was a, it was the habit of the artist peter chan and scott campbell and Nathan Stapley, our early artists, who just worked a lot on paper. Like Scott liked to grab paper bags from the grocery store and draw mm. on them and just work in weird mediums. And um, and some of it was just the legacy of LucasArts, where we had a big flat file um, full of our art in, in the hallway that we um, is still up at the barn in Skywalker Ranch. We have to visit it when we remaster the games. And so we have a big flat file. Full of, we just were doing what we knew, which is like stuff all that stuff all that art. You know, I always thought, I've always valued art and artists and you know, I still um, yeah, have a bunch of Lucas concept art they gave me when I left. And, um, you know, it's just so, uh, you don't really have that anymore as much physical artifacts of, you know, creativity. Seeing a handcrafted work of art on a piece of paper is just very powerful, you know. And I think uh, um, whenever we have a chance of gathering that stuff or collecting it like the newer stuff would be now like emily's uh, mm-hmm. puppets have mm-hmm. you seen have you ever seen emily's making little paper dolls like she'll she'll pitch a scene by waving a bunch of paper dolls around and um that's a great question i wonder if those are safe somewhere how can we say yeah. this yeah well that's and it's something you never think about archiving in the moment you never no, you always look back true. and you're like why didn't anyone save better yeah. copies of this and then when it's your turn you're like well, <laughs> what <laughs> well that's we have been we have been uh suitably impressed actually with with the the breadth and depth of the archives that you do have because yeah i mean of course you can i guess you can always save more of that stuff but you do you do have a lot of it from certainly the studios that we've been in touch with and and seen um so and it's yeah it's it's nostalgic even from an, an outside perspective it's you know to have played certain games at a certain time throughout the years and then to be able to go back and see the the things that went into creating those uh, is quite a well. I don't think it's quite a privilege actually, but it's it's also something that um, so various people we've spoken to the the Peters uh, McConnell and Chan um, all, all the Peters they they talked about this so 
quite independently of each other, they talked about, uh, Peter McConnell talked about how when he's composing, he likes to have um, art up of the game to kind of inspire him. And he, he mentioned Peter Chan in that quite directly, that he would have a piece of Peter Chan's work up and would and kind of work to that um, vibe. And then similarly, Peter Chan talked about using uh, music to inspire him and get him in a certain mood. And I wondered, does that, is there a particular part of that that speaks to your creative process at all? Is there a, you know, do you, are you kind of somebody that when you're writing, do you like to have music on? Do you want it to be completely quiet? Like, how do you, what's your sort of, how do you get into Mm -hmm. that zone? It's funny to think of Peter uh, listening to Peter McConnell's music and Peter McConnell having uh, Peter Chan's art up. I mostly I have this one heavy metal playlist I always have going on mm-hmm. Spotify, and I'm. But it's like this one. It's like the same collection of metal songs that I've listened to and written to for like fifty years, <laughs> fifty years, thirty years. I like even I just remember being mostly it was like to keep me awake at night when I was working um, really late on Grim Fandango I'd be listening to Motorhead and writing people would think I was listening to you know Mexican folk music or something which I did listen to a lot of during that game but when I was writing I need something that I can kind of tune out because I've heard it so many Mm. times you know and so uh, even stuff with lyrics I can listen to if um, it's stuff on that playlist which I'm very familiar with and so it doesn't distract yeah. me I can't listen to like new music like you have that Discover Weekly week uh, or some some like uh, playlist of new music I just can't listen to and I need to focus on writing but that's that's usually um, what I'm mm. doing what I'm writing yeah. It's, yeah I find it quite easy to be distracted part of my brain starts going to something else and starts Chewing on the lyrics, if I yeah, if I'm listening to music that I don't know, I can definitely I'm definitely a white noise kind of person. Um, so, so we've seen. I mean, we've seen. I think as well part of your processes with things like the the double fun adventure uh, documentary. There was kind of there's plenty of of stuff in there about kind of the post it on the door to say you know do not disturb writing till eleven o'clock o'clock that kind of that kind of thing. Is that has your process changed much over the last I mean not necessarily 20 years but even over the last sort of sort of five to ten years um when you since you've moved away from well you had moved away from the really big games you've now moved kind of back into that with Psychonauts too but does it does it change if you're working on a like a really big game versus a a smaller title or is there are there always kind of similarities always things that you go back to for Every game is different. It depends on how I interface with it. Like sometimes it's someone else's game, like Iron Brigade. You know, it's Brad's game, but I'm going to write the cutscenes for it. So um, I would start off by talking to them, and and, but in the end, it's usually me in my notebook, like a long, you know, uh, handwriting in my notebook, uh, and then me in Google Docs, and then me. It's you know, it's been very similar for a long time. Um, And uh, I would say that hasn't really changed. The only thing that's changed is I've gotten. Worse and worse about doing my free writing every morning. I'm supposed to be doing free writing every morning, and I just so bad about it. I'm always te- telling people they should do it. I'm always lecturing people, like, you know, you should try doing free writing, and then I never do it. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Okay, I promise that this is the last mid-episode interruption from me, and I also promise that I'm not going to remind you again that 20 Double Fine Years is available right now to pre-order from doublefinebook.com. Definitely not going to remind you of that. Anyway, it's time for the final part of the show now, so let's rejoin Tim and Stace with Tim talking about what games he's been playing and how he's been playing them. I mostly I've been playing a lot of Switch games this generation and um, a lot of Animal Crossing during COVID, like a lot of people. 
Um, and playing with my daughter is really fun because she has a she's on the island with me. And uh, lately, when I'm busy, I've I've been getting games played by just getting my daughter interested in them. Mm-hmm. She plays it for me. Like I was, I've always meant to play Undertale, but I I just loaded it up and left it around on the Switch. And sure <laughs> enough, she's playing it and telling me about it. And I was like, ah, this is very efficient. <laughs> but I do still play. Strangely, I've been really um, having this weird retro game thing going on um, since COVID because I wanted to get into. I've always wanted to get into. Atari mm-hmm. 2600 homebrew. Mm-hmm. Like I've, n- I've never done anything, you know, and, and seeing how much fun like uh, Ed Freeze and uh, Mike Mike were having with it, I was like, I want to get into it. So I went and picked up because I I'd lost my old Atari, but I went. It's part of my little setup right here now. Oh wow! This little little here's my Atari, tiny little TV, and I've been like acquiring all the old games again. <laughs> um, so it started as like wanting to, and I've been doing some homebrew and learning how to do 6502 assembly, and that's a lot of fun. And then. Um, but then I started, like, I realized there are all these games I never played because I got out of it around mm. 82. And, like, in like 83 is, like, when all the best games were made. And these games are amazing. And I feel silly, like, because like, most people I think of them as, oh, they're really simplistic and it's just nostalgia and, you know. But I really, like, uh, I, there are a bunch of games that are really fantastic that I never played, like um, Frostbite and Sequest <laughs> and... Uh, Hero. I'd never played wow. Hero before. I had not even played River Raid. Like River Raid was after my time. So going back and discovering all those has been really great. And I um, and I thought maybe I like all retro games. So I, I saw I acquired like a Coleco and some mm-hmm. newer stuff, newer, newer, like the one generation <laughs> yeah. after that, you know. And I'm like, almost immediately they start to become less interesting because they're like, as soon as video games could kind of do anything. They become less interesting, but those old first games where they could barely do anything, they could make a few blocks mm-hmm. appear on the screen. Mm-hmm. It was so constrained that it just forced so many, I think, interesting decisions and focus. And um, anyway, I just think it's an interesting challenge. Uh, so I've been into, into that lately. And I, and I still have my old adventure cartridge, which was like a seminal experience for me, right? Like this is... But uh, and I've been talking. I, I got to meet Warren Robinette, who was the first video game developer star mm-hmm. that I knew of. Like I didn't know. I'd never known a name of anyone who made a video game before. And then I found that you know through schoolyard gossip that Easter egg in Adventure, where his name is in the game. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the first Easter eggs ever. And he put his name in the game, even though Atari was against that. And um, I got to meet him at GDC one year, and it was like my first game celebrity experience. But awesome. anyway, so just being in touch with that, it's interesting because I had the way I have this set up is like I have my big Razer laptop that I play Psychonauts mm-hmm. on right here, and so I have like the oldest video games ever made right here, <laughs> and then like the newest hardware playing Psychonauts Two, which is one of the newest video games ever made. Um, Looking ahead from where we are now to kind of the next couple of years, how do you? Do you are you full of hope for the future? Is this you know is is lockdown getting you down? Like how do you feel kind of looking ahead at this as this generation begins? I mean this generation is literally beginning right here for you now with the console arriving on your desk. But how do you feel kind of looking ahead at the next five to ten years of of this next console cycle? Is it a are you uh, are you overjoyed? Are you does it feel like a treadmill? <laughs> are you just like oh here we go again? It's back. No, I mean, and I don't know if this is just because you're asking after the election, but I am very hopeful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, that's part of the reason we went uh, with Microsoft, is that things are changing, no matter what we do. And the idea of subscriptions and games, uh, the way you get games is, is changing. And um, and I like their plan for it, uh, but in general, 
I saw how we fit into that. Like, if you have a subscription type service where you're not, you know, our games have always had this challenge of being like kind of weird and kind of like taking a long time to find their audience. Like, it's a game like Psychonauts takes a while for people to hear about. Be like, you know, it sounds weird. And I don't know if you want to give like, oh, a game about stacking dolls. Uh, that's not what I was looking for. But then, eventually, like through word of mouth, people find out about them. And, and so, um, how do you get past that barrier? If you want to do something that's re- really unique and original, how do you get past? people's comfort zones, you know, with it. And subscription services are great for that because you know, you'll find yourself checking out things on Netflix you never would have walked out of a video store with. Like, if you had one movie to buy on a, on a, on a movie night and you come back from, remember a video? <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. store, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And you came back from a video store, like, you would be like, I'm going to get this sure bad thing yeah. and maybe one extra. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be like, I want to watch this documentary about a guy who makes sushi. Like, you probably wouldn't check that out immediately, you know. But I think on Netflix, you'll be like, you'll try a bunch of stuff because you can always just back out of it. And so, anyway, so I feel like our games um, are great for that because we make a lot of them, and I think they're weird and interesting. So you might think, like, I don't know for sure what I think about that, but I'm definitely interested. So uh, that's what I want to make. I want to make games that make people feel that way, like not entirely comfortable at first, but intrigued, and then hopefully delighted by the end of it. Awesome. Well, that's, yeah, I like that. That's a nice, a nice summing up. That's, I'm sold. I'm sold on Game Pass. That's, yeah, that's the future. Awesome. <laughs> I was going to, there's something I thought of when you're talking about the team that is not the most positive thing, but it's kind of like, I felt, uh, I wanted to mention here because I forgot about it in a recent mm-hmm. interview. Uh, people talked, uh, it was on the Special Effect podcast, and they were like, um, someone asked, like, do you have any regrets? And I always have a similar answer to this, which is really creatively like, no, because I've always just done, Everything for the, I feel like the right reasons. Like, I feel like I've always followed our inspiration and done creatively the, the thing that was most, um, like we haven't done things for the money. We did things for, uh, artistic purposes and stuff usually. So we always feel good about them. Um, but looking back at Double Finds and the time before that at Lucas, like, I feel like I do, the one thing I really regret, um, and look back on and, um, have learned a lot from were the crunch modes I put my team through, I think. It's the only thing I would look back on and be like, oh, that was really, that was really bad. And I don't think it came from a malevolent, exploited mm. place to me. It just it came from my habits of working and my focus and my, my priorities on the thing that we're making. From the very beginning, like being, you know, working at Lucas, working on Monkey Island, you know, and you just care so much about what you're working on. That's all you want to talk about. Is the game good? Is the game good? What else can we do to make the game better? Like that. And everybody around you is just feels the same way. We're all like, the thing should be good. And it's not, even though, you know, Ron Gilbert did come in our office and be like, hey, I think we have to start working nights and weekends. And we're like, all right, cool. I'm 21. What am I going to do? Go home and watch Mystery Science Theater? And, you know, <laughs> it's because I was, I mean, other 21-year-olds have much more exciting lives. But anyway, even though we were told that, it wasn't because we were ordered to do that. It was because that's where mentally we all were. We just, the thing has to be made. It has to be great. It has to be good. And that carried on until, like, Grim Fandango and, like, just, like, every, you know, every, this has to be good. And I was so obsessive about it that I was blind to other people also suffering mm-hmm. you know like there i'm like yeah of course we're all working late of course the thing has to be good the thing and that and, you know the when psychonauts one was being made that was like the worst crunch mode ever where we were just all there but everyone believed in it so much that everyone was just like you know working till like five in the morning and just dragging through and just like oh um and that was terrible and i i didn't realize how bad it was at the time and looking back on it well we did realize it was terrible right at the end and then when it was over we were like never again let's never do this again we're going to read a bunch of books on production mythology we're going to learn about this new scrum thing that people are talking about and we're going to 
We're going to learn how to organize and lock down our builds and be just more predictable about our schedules. And we have, we have, you know, we have, you know, we have some intense weeks here or there, you know, and brutal and, and, but really nothing I would call crunch mm. mode. And now we have a very strict policy about it. Like if anyone even suggests like glorifying crunch mode, it gets hammered mm. down pretty fast at work. And so I feel like we've learned a lot and as a company. That's now part of our culture. It's part of who we are. Like even if Microsoft told us to crunch on something, we mm. would not crunch on it. Because that's a big part of our values, and so I feel, and they they wouldn't either. They haven't, you know, asked for that either. But um, so I feel like, even though we have not changed in a lot of ways, that's probably the biggest way that we've uh, changed a lot as a company. I don't know if that's no, that, well, that's just something that was thinking of for the last. I think uh, that's a hugely positive thing because I think I I've naively, I've never I've never been through that i mean i've i guess i've been through my version of that kind of crunch mode but not not in that sort of very structured organized way of of working six day weeks and whatever it is but i always naively i remember hearing it described once as it's like it's like when you tidy up your home and it's like well you always kind of keep it tidy but when people are coming over you tidy up extra hard kind of thing and that was i, I remember hearing that description of crunch and thinking well, yeah i kind of i kind of understand that but i feel that, that was perhaps naive and i think the the sort of the systematic reliance on it and the working it into a schedule i guess is where that comes undone and that's not that's that takes on a more nefarious uh um flavor because it's like well now you're planning to exploit people and that's that's when it's that's when it's not good so uh yeah so i guess the fact that you guys are are very deliberately moving away from that is, particularly in this day and age, is only, uh, only a positive. Yeah, we haven't had a crunch in 15 years, I don't think. I wouldn't say. Well, there you so. go. Cool. But I did do it in the past, so... Live and learn. Well, live and learn. That's cool. That's it. That's our show. Our interview with Tim Schaefer by us for you. I genuinely hope that you enjoyed it. Please do share with your friends. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes. All of that good stuff. That really does have a huge impact on the number of people we're able to reach with our podcast and everything we do. So we'd really appreciate it if you could share, could review. That'd be fantastic. And don't forget, 20 Double Fine Years is available right now to pre-order at doublefinebook.com. That's doublefinebook.com. Check out all of those pre-order bonuses. They won't last forever. So do go and get involved if you're interested. Whatever the case, though, come and see us on social media. We're at Indie by Design. We hope to see you back for next week's episode. Otherwise, all the best. Enjoy the rest of the week and see you later. Thank you.